Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. We will be joined in a little bit here by Tulane coach Travis Jewett to talk all things Green Wave baseball and New Orleans eating. Uh, but before we get to all of that, we have to let you know that the Baseball America College Podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we're, we're back here on the podcast post-Thanksgiving. We're, we're into December now as people are listening to this. Uh, it's kind of crazy that, that that's where we are in the calendar, uh, but hopefully everyone had had a happy Thanksgiving. I know it was probably a little bit different for a lot of people this year, but hopefully everyone was able to uh, to get some turkey or lasagna or whatever your meal of choice is uh, for the Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah, quick uh, before we get into anything deeper, uh, let's let's do a quick Thanksgiving download uh what was on what was on your menu however you did thanksgiving this year teddy what was on your menu what was your favorite part what was what was a highlight uh how was your thanksgiving so it was uh it was a little different this well it was very different for me this year just beyond the everything surrounding 2020 but uh, i had girl or i had thanksgiving dinner at my girlfriend's parents for the first time and uh so they are from Egypt. And so we had a turkey, which is traditional in Egypt for Egyptian holiday cooking as well, as I understand it. Uh, But it was definitely spiced differently than I had had turkey before. And their stuffing is is a rice stuffing that gets cooked inside the bird. And then the the sides, we kind of took it easy on the sides of being, you know, just a gathering of five people. Uh, so it was, it was, a uh, you know, not, not an intense number of sides. There were Brussels sprouts and green beans. There were mashed potatoes. There was, um, another traditional Egyptian salad, but, uh, it, in my understanding in a more typical year where there would have been more people, there would have been other sides and I might've, you know, made a, a, a cranberry sauce or something that they weren't going to have, but, you know, is part of a Thanksgiving tradition for me. Uh, but in this case, we, uh, we kept it simple. And then I made an apple uh, cake effectively. It's an Allison Roman recipe, which you can check out online. Uh, but it was, it was her sticky apple cake, which is effectively just an apple upside down cake. And then there was also a pecan pie. Sounds like a pretty good spread. Sounds like a, like a solid holiday there. We, ours was, um, you know, similarly uh, different just in terms of, um, you know, we're trying to, to be safe and, and do it smart and do it the right way and, and all that kind of stuff. And that meant Thanksgiving was a little bit different. However, we, we still were able to do it. Um, so we had uh, with, with my family. So we, we used to be really abstract about Thanksgiving uh, with my dad and my stepmom and, and my siblings. Uh, they would often do uh, Mexican food. Uh, they are Texans, um, as, as am I, of course. And so we, we would do Mexican food on Thanksgiving. That was a thing for a long, long time, just because they, they kind of preferred it. And, and 
they, they kind of like the idea of being a little bit different. And it's a funny thing when you, when your parents start to get a little bit older, they start to get a little bit more nostalgic. They start to, I think, kind of cling to some of those older traditions. So now last, I don't know, five years now with me and my siblings being all grown now, they've kind of gone back to the more traditional Thanksgiving, I think, because again, they are kind of clinging to those older traditions and they want to have that more traditional Thanksgiving feel again, which is, is totally fine by me. I'm not a huge turkey guy. I'm a, a big turkey's left turkey leftovers guy. I love a good carved turkey sandwich with barbecue sauce on it just as a, as a base. I'll play around with what else is on it, but as a base, that's just a great way to start. So I like that. So we just did all kind of the traditional stuff up to and including a cranberry sauce. My, my stepmom, I feel for her a little bit. She has this great cranberry sauce recipe passed down from her mom and perhaps her grandmother originally. It's been in the family for a long, long time. And it's, as far as cranberry sauce goes, work intensive. Cranberry sauce is not the most work intensive typically of, of sides. However, this one is relatively speaking. And she puts a lot of work into it and she's really the only one who eats it. And she'll make this huge bowl of it. And then every year it's like the same thing where she like realizes all over again that like, oh yeah, no one else really eats this. But, but she makes it and by all accounts, it's good. And it's just not my kind of thing. I'll usually try like a bite or two of it. It's just not my kind of deal. However, uh, so this year we had, um, my siblings just came in for the day of the meal basically. And then I, I stuck around um, with, with my parents, uh, my fiance and I stuck around for a few extra days. And so on actual Thanksgiving, we did go back to the Mexican food feast on the actual holiday. So that was kind of nice. Got the best of both worlds, went back to the, the traditional thing with the larger group, which was still a small group in the grand scheme, but, and then the Mexican food with the smaller group, which was great because then it lasted two or three days after that. So we had some, some enchiladas and rice and beans. My dad stopped short of the sopapillas, which he has done in the past doing the, the sopapilla desserts, but he is trying to trying to eat a little better these days, trying to, to stay healthier. So he's, he's staying away from powdered sugar desserts right now. So he didn't, he didn't go that far. So a good Thanksgiving, different, but good. I got the best of both worlds in terms of the traditional and the Mexican. So I was, I was happy with that. And now I am looking forward to eating a little bit lighter for the rest of time, given the way that we went. That, that is the key, you know, in, in the following week is like, what do you, what do you do? Uh, food-wise, and uh, something we uh, we get into a little bit here with, with Travis Stewart, not so much in the um, you know Thanksgiving sense, more in the you live in New Orleans sense. <laughs> um, but they are th- there are similarities, but but be- between the, these two situations, I feel like so. Uh, you know, ho- again, hopefully all of our listeners had uh, had a happy Thanksgiving, and uh, you know as we we move into December now where uh, everyone is able to uh, enjoy whatever year end traditions, uh, holidays and, and, and everything. I, there's a lot that goes on uh, in, in this time of year. So hopefully everyone uh, is able to, to enjoy those as, as best we are able here in, uh, in this strange, unprecedented year. Um, I guess this has been the time of the show where we've kind of talked news the last few weeks. We have some news but I think let's uh, let's save that until after our interview with Travis Jewett. Uh, let's just get right to that here, Joe. It's uh, Tulane was an interesting team in 2020, a very interesting team, off to a 15 and two start. I know I was still trying to you know get a good feel 
for what Tulane was. Uh, they they started the season very impressively, uh, swept Florida Gulf Coast on opening weekend, had a series win, maybe a series sweep against Fullerton, and they were about to host Long Beach State in what was shaping up to be like this very fascinating uh, non-conference series uh, the weekend that the season was canceled. So unfortunately we, we, uh, we weren't able to see that play out, but I, I, you know, seeing the way that they had, you know, started the year and the, the progression of the program over the last couple, it's hard not to be excited. And then they come through the draft and they do lose, you know, Hudson Haskin, uh, the big slugger in the middle of the order, but they're able to return their ace. They return a lot of really good pitching as, as we talk about. And, you know, as you look at the American going into to the next season, I don't see anyone running away with it. We haven't really, you know, hammered it all out yet, but, you know, UCF is going to be good again. East Carolina is going to be good again. Um, Houston retooled a lot. So, you know, we'll see what that looks like. And, and then, you know, Wichita State, we had Eric Wedge on this podcast a couple months ago, a lot of excitement there. And, you know, Tulane, there, there's no reason not to be excited about them moving forward. And so I don't think any one of those teams is head and shoulders above the rest. I, I don't even know, you know, that there's, you know, I think UCF is probably our clear favorite right now, but I don't know how clear that is. So uh, it'll be interesting to see the green wave, interesting to see how the American as a whole plays out. And uh, so I'm excited to be able to talk with, with Travis Jewett here about uh, his view on the team as, as, as he looks to the, the 2021 season. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you in, in terms of excitement about this Tulane team and just being fascinated by the American Conference as a whole. I think, sure, there were SEC series that got canceled that, that they were coming up that weekend right when things got canceled. Of course, you know, ACC was underway, but some good series coming there. But I, I might be more frustrated that we didn't get to see Tulane and Long Beach because those were two teams that I think we would have had a really clear picture of, of who and what they were coming out of that weekend, just because I think as much as they had accomplished and they both had impressive wins on their resume, as, as much as that is true, I think there was also still like a little bit of nagging, you know, is this just kind of a team coming out hot? How are they going to stand the test of time? And I would have loved to have seen how that played out. And Oh, by the way, Tulane had Dallas Baptist the weekend after that, which also would have been a banger. So Tulane really had, quite a schedule lined up where they were really going to, if they'd have kept winning at that clip and this is really putting the cart in front of the horse, but you know, if they win those two series or maybe even split them, they're in a position where, Hey, if you play really well, if you win the American, maybe this is a host team. And again, that's the cart way in front of the horse, but I think that was in play for this Tulane team. You know, when you start with Braden Altoff at the front of the rotation, just off to an incredible start. And I think that was real. Um, in terms of it wasn't any sort of mirage where he was just pitching above his head and then a really old offense. And now the flip side of that is they had a really old offense last year. And a lot of those guys have moved on either, uh, you know, just matriculating through the program. You mentioned Haskin being drafted. Um, so there is some turnover on offense, but last year it was a really old group and it seems like they kind of got the pitching figured out a little bit. And so uh, they kind of got robbed of being able to show what was what, in 2020, but still there is a lot of lingering excitement about this group going into 21. Absolutely. So with that, let's get to our interview with Tulane coach, Travis Stewart. 
Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're excited to be joined by Tulane coach Travis Jewett. Tulane was off to a 15-2 and start this spring when the, the season was canceled. Uh, a, a really impressive start to the season there. For the Green Wave coach, what clicked for this team, uh, or for that team, I guess I should say, uh, so early in the season that you guys were able to come out and, and have that kind of, of start to the 2020 season? Well, I think, first off, I want to say thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Um, anytime I can talk about this great university and our players, uh, it's a welcome thing. So thank you very much. Um, you know, I think really, Teddy, what happened was, you know, I, I, our guys – Loved playing baseball. I think they loved each other. You know, I think it was a very spirited, connected group. We talk about that a lot in terms of, you know, that those are things that kind of help the scoreboard kind of tip into our favor. So that uh, continued to get better. Uh, they, they just enjoyed being around each other and played the game at a very passionate level. So that was kind of fun to watch. And then I think, you know, and you and I have known each other for a while. You know, I think what we're able to do, um, in the years leading up is just trying to kind of get the pitching um, going a little bit. And um, through recruitment, you know, we we're able to um, get some quality arms and some junior college help that was immediate impact. And so I just, I really think that the, the ability to get the game established on the mound and kind of keep us into it. Cause we we've swung the bat pretty okay. Um, in most seasons that we've been here, um, but this was a little bit different in the fact that we were just kind of always um, in range, you know, and we're able to do some different things. But I would say that the pitching um, all in all kind of set the, the year off to a good start. And so, um, you know, if you don't have that guy that can stand on that little brown circle in the middle of the field that's slightly elevated above everybody else and kind of get after the opposing offense, you know how tough it can be. So we're able to kind of establish ourselves there a little bit. And I think, um, it just proved to us that, you know, that's what we got to continue to do to we can um, be in ball games. Braden Oltoff had probably the best numbers of any starting pitcher in the country over four starts in, in 2020, just incredible numbers across the board. At what point did you realize what you had in him? Um, how impressed with, were you with what he did and, and what was the key to his success? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that was, um, you know, that was kind of the, I made without saying his name, you know, obviously that's the guy kind of that I was talking about that kind of got the weekend started for us. But, um, you know, he's just a complete pitcher, Joe. Uh, he's got three pitches that he can throw for strike blindfolded. You know, it's just like uh, you hang your glove somewhere and he can hit the middle of your target. So uh, for a guy to get up there and be able to throw his fastball to both sides of the plate, dump a curveball. And then it's just a, it's a swing and miss slider, you know? Um, so he was uh, just a huge addition. And again, one of those junior college kids I talked to you about earlier um, that we quote unquote hit on. And, uh, you know, he, he gets everything he deserves, you know? Uh, I would say that his routine, you know, his desire to be great, his craft is, it's evident every single day, even when he's not pitching. So um very directed on what he wants to do how he wants to do it you know and he's got a plan of attack and um he just goes out and uh was able to execute for us so pretty excited about his return to this team for sure 
Um, I would tell you guys this, you know, he got even better this fall. And I know we're talking about those good numbers that he had last year, but the ability to stay humble, stay present, keep moving forward, you know, uh, learning from past successes and failures and uh, taking it forward. He had, he had a great fall um, this year. So um, Crystal Ball says, you know, we're expecting um, great things for him again this spring. You guys are in a little bit of an enviable position where you also bring back Aldrich and Benoit, the guys who were, who had some starts for you in 2020. So you can kind of run it back if that's what you end up wanting to do. So how are you and Coach Latham kind of thinking about and working through competition on the mound, knowing that you you have these incumbents who you feel like you probably know what you're going to get and then working from there? Yeah, you know, we think we've actually even – Last year, I made mention that, you know, I think the big difference was the pitching strength. And I think we've even strengthened that more through uh, recruitment and the return of those three guys, for sure, uh, that you made mention. You know, Benoit has been uh, had an incredible fall too. his velocity is way up. Um, you know, he's um, perfecting his craft, too. So um, we do have that with us going forward. You know, Jack is also a capable left-handed pitcher, another junior college transfer. So we do have that, but, uh, you know, we've got some additions uh, as well with some high school and some junior college arms. So just kind of playing it out, you know, right now, uh, had a kind of a interrupted fall, so to speak, but uh, we are able to compete at the end. And, you know, I, I would say that those three guys are going to be right back in the mix to continue to do what they've done. And, and the competition that we've, uh, you know, increased on, I think that's helped everybody get better. So that's um, what we're looking at going forward. On the hitting side, there's maybe a little bit less um, consistency, maybe a little bit more turnover going into this year. What, uh, what have you seen this fall from, from the hitters? Well, not as much as I'd like, but I'm also, you know, when you're competing against yourself, there's a, it's a 50, 50 thing all the time. Right. So it's like, why aren't we hitting as good? Well, I would say because our pitching is a lot better. So it's kind of a win, win, but uh, you know, anytime you lose a Hudson Haskin, who was, you know, I think the 39th player chosen overall last year, um, you know, and then the experience with uh, Ty Johnson and Artigues and Grant Matthews, you know, you, you do have some holes, but the recruitment, um, you know, we think we have some pieces. And again, um, the ability just to stay in range, we keep talking about. I always say, you know, we're like next door. We can always knock on Frank's door. That's my neighbor. We're not two blocks down or anything like that. So the ability just to stay in the game on the mound will allow us to, you know, kind of learn our offense and see what our strengths are going to be. But, um, you know, with the return of Avilas and Minder and, you know, Frankie Neiman and Colin Burns and some of these other guys, you know, I think we, we certainly have some pieces and I like our left, right. I think we're going to be able to run a little bit more. I think we're going to be able to execute our offense a little bit more. You know, I think uh, first few years we've kind of found ourselves standing around and kind of playing a little bit more station to station and trying to swing our way into games. Now I think we can actually try to ignite our legs a little bit and take the bat and we, talk about it being a wand and you know have the ability to create some off that way and do some things like that because of the strength of our pitching and again being in close games be able to take a few more risks so um i like our pieces you know we just kind of got to get it all tied together but again the 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 uh, strength of our pitching i think will allow us to 
try to manipulate our offense a little bit. Trevor Minder was a guy I was actually going to ask you about, uh, you know, outstanding season last year after coming in from junior college uh, off to a really hot start. Uh, what can we expect from him in 2021? What allowed him to excel at that level in 2020? Well, he's just a really good baseball player, period. You know, I mean, so the thing that I've always said about him is that he's got an internal clock that's meant to play this game. You know, he's never too high, never too low. Um, you know, he plays really good defense. He's a good base runner. Um, and he's just gotten better, too, you know, just like Oltoff and those guys. And I think that's what's most important. You know, those guys that have that success and things like that. It's just to stay centered, stay humbled and keep moving forward. So I think, uh, you know, we're looking at a guy that can man third base for sure and play it well. He can handle the hot smash. The ball always finds his glove. He can play on the run, throw from a bunch of different arm angles and stuff like that. And then offensively, you know, I think we've got a middle of the order type hitter that can hit for a high average. And I think you'll see his power develop too, as he gets older. You've had a little bit of a, a nice run of hitters here with Cody Hosey and, and Hudson Haskin. Is he the next guy up? Is there someone else that, that could be the next guy up as in terms of you know that big time middle of the order threat uh, for, for the green wave? Well, I appreciate you saying that. I, I do think he's kind of, you know, next in line, you know, I mean, you're, you're talking about a guy that uh, I think has a chance to play in the big leagues and uh, you know, so we're going to be counting on him for sure. You know, we've got some other ones. We've got a, a few sophomores that, um, you know, have kind of grown up in front of our eyes and haven't had a chance to play a lot, but they're, you know, doing good things. Colin Burns, the shortstop and Ethan Groff um, playing kind of second base in the outfield. And then, we also have Frankie Neiman. That's always been a good hitter. Um, his power is developing. And then Luis Avilas behind the plate, you know, brings a, a pretty good power threat too. So, um, yeah, but I would say Minder, you know, looking at it on paper, he's kind of the, you know, the next guy, so to speak. Not to uh, take us back to the, the pitching necessarily, but I think one guy there's a little bit of interest in is a grad transfer you have in, in Jake McDonald, who some people might be familiar with his story just because he's, he's had a, a really winding path and he's had some bad luck and it just seems like things have never fully aligned for him at the division one level. What can you tell us about him and, and what are expectations about him and what he can bring to the table? Well, thank you for bringing him up. Um, first and foremost, he is one beautiful human being. Uh, we are a better organization for having his feet uh, inside of it, that's for sure. Um, you know, I like the fact that he's been punched a few times, you know, but like anything, he gets off the ground, he dusts himself off, uh, he's present. He's a very aggressive kid. He's got a great arm, Joe, um, you know, and uh, Coach Latham's done a really good job with him um, this fall. So we're expecting, uh, you know, him to – grab the ball in, in whatever role it might be and be a productive part of um, Latham's army. This is going to be your fifth season at Tulane. The first two, you scuffled a bit under 500, and then you've made some pretty good progress over the last couple of years. Obviously, we didn't get to see where 20 was going, but, you know, you had done a lot to build a, an NCAA tournament resume already if you were able to, you know, keep that up in conference play. What's it been like to watch that, uh, you know, kind of development and, and and just a lot goes into program development and, and, and building a program. Just 
how do you look back on those first couple of years leading you to where you've been and, and where you're going now? Well, thank you for the kind words there. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a little bit of a, a haul that way. Um, you know, I tell the kids all the time, sometimes it doesn't happen on your watch, you know, in the first couple of years, um, we had a lot of good players. I think we, again, we were just, you know, short, uh, on the mound and in, in a lot of different ways. We had some capable people for sure, but just the length of it, the ability to do it, um, consistency or consistently, excuse me, was, um, you know, not as present as it's been. So I think when you get somewhere, you got to look at it, you got to see wh what do you want to do? How do you want to get it there? And, you know, I think we've just been able to, through the course of time, which it takes time, especially at a private school um, with high academic standards and cost, you know, just to um, be patient and get your roster um, and the monies where you need it to be, you know? And so we feel just through the course of time and every year we've tried to make some improvements and we just feel like we're getting the monies um, where they belong and start to show up on the mound and, and um, go from there. So, you know, we can't repeat last year, but what we can do is we can continue to, you know, use the, the experiences and the positive experiences from the past and, and get that winning feeling, you know, so that we can try to replicate it as best we can moving forward. So, you know, I, I'm um, happy with the direction. I certainly would have liked to be faster, but um, I feel like we're doing it the right way. And, um, you know, there's a humanistic thing with this thing too, you know, in terms of roster changing and things like that. And so we feel like we've done a good job in, in uh, handling that. And I think now, um, you know, we, we talk about this around here a lot. It's just like deserving victory. And I think the way we go about it, the kids we have in here, um, the way they go about their business, train, all those types of things, you know, I think we're starting to get some, some of that deserved victory. I'm interested a little bit in your, your journey in your, your career, you had primarily your experiences out West until you get to Vanderbilt. And now obviously you've uh, you know, now you're at, at Tulane. And I think there's particularly in, in previous generations in college baseball coaching, it was very easy for coaches to get pigeonholed as being a West coast guy or a deep South guy or a Florida or a Texas guy. And you obviously have broken out of that. Other coaches have also broken out of that. We see a lot more of that these days. And I'm, I'm just curious from your perspective, if there's, a key to being a coach who is able to have success in a lot of different geographic places and maybe what the commonalities are in the coaches who have, who have been able to do that versus someone who's been in, in one region. And, and there's really nothing wrong with that. If you're comfortable, you're comfortable, but, but I'm curious about what it takes to be able to have success all around the country and, and, and what that entails. Well, thanks again for saying that. Um, you know, I, I just really think it's all about personality and, you know, trying to be diligent and share what's good about where your feet are, you know? And um, I just think whether you're born in Tacoma, Washington, like I was, doesn't mean that you can't develop relationships from with people from Florida or New York or wherever. It's just about the willingness to do so. Uh, we have a great staff that will, you know, go near and far, you know, to share what's good about Tulane, you know, and you're talking about a, one of the top universities in the United States and a destination city like New Orleans, you know, we feel like our league is one of the top three or four rated RPI conferences in the country. So there's a lot to sell. And I think as long as we do a good job of just um, fostering relationships, making new ones and, you know, providing an opportunity for 
you know, people's players, you know, then I think that's how you, you become successful, even though you were born in a certain part or you, you know, coached in a certain part, it's just all about relationships. And we just think we got a hell of a thing to sell here, you know, education and baseball. And, and we think we can do it both ends on a high level. You, uh, you coached at Vanderbilt during the 2014 national championship team. Um, you were there from 13 to 16. What, what do you take from that time? And, and I guess specifically from that national championship season, what, what do you remember of most about that group? Well, what I take first and foremost is, is, you know, when you're at a, a place like a Vandy, you know, the, the components of the education and the baseball combination, you know, and when I, um, decided to leave there and come here, I saw so many mirroring qualities in the two institutions, you know, obviously they play in the sec and we're the American, but you look at a lot of the similarities about world-class education and elite baseball opportunity. And I just think the older I get, you know, the more that education becomes, uh, important. And, uh, so it's fun to, share with the kids that, you know, they can do both and we can still get to the big leagues from, you know, little old Tulane. So um, that's kind of what I took from there. And then obviously working with coach Corbin, um, you find out, I made mention earlier about the scoreboard tipping in our direction. You know, I think there's a lot of things that come from, you know, just the team building the relationships, the way you go about it, you know, that I think can help. And so we've mirrored a lot of that and tried to bring it forward, you know, cause there's no, reason not to imitate some of those things that obviously are successful. So um, that's kind of what I, when I left a place like that to come to a place like this, I just see a lot of mirroring qualities. So um, fortunate for my time there, you know, making mention of those quality teams that we we're on and able to win national championship in 14 and play for one in 15, um, you know, Certainly the quality of the character of the kids that we're recruiting, uh, the investment, you know, just the, what they put into it every day to, you know, um, try to become the best versions of themselves. You know, I think that's where they separate themselves a lot. So, um, you know, that's what we're trying to mirror here. And I think uh, been fortunate and lucky, whatever you want to call it, to have had my feet in those types of organizations with those types of successes so that we can hopefully share that with those that choose to come to a school like Tulane. So we'll wrap up here with the most important question that Teddy and I ask to all of our guests. Um, and I will uh, filibuster here a little bit after I ask it to give you a chance to, to think on your feet here, because we're going to put you on the spot a little bit. But we ask all of our guests to describe their favorite sandwich. And so some coaches or, or players have just described how they make their favorite sandwich. And that's totally cool. You could tell us what kind of bread you want and the meat and the cheese, the sauces, what have you. Other times they tell us uh, a sandwich they like from a particular local place. And so uh, no pressure, but given that you're in New Orleans, I'm particularly interested in that part of it. Uh, but I don't want to uh, lead the jury here. You can uh, answer that question however you'd like. So please, Travis Jewett, explain to us your favorite sandwich. Oh, Here's a funny story for you real quick. I remember when I first got here, had some nice people want to take me out for a lunch. And, uh, you know, when I think lunch, I think about a sandwich that I'll describe to you later. But we ended up going to a nice uh, seafood restaurant and they ordered charbroiled oysters. 
and I was thinking, oh boy, you know, I thought going to lunch, I was going to get a sub sandwich, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> the ability to kind of open up and, you know, when in Rome, you know, type of thing. And now charbroiled oysters are some of my favorite things, but, uh, you know, you made mention, this is a destination city, man, with a lot of, uh, um, great food, no doubt about it. I will tell you guys on a podcast, I know you can't see me, but I, um, uh, gained some weight in those t- trying first couple of years. And I've actually lost like 45 pounds over the pandemic. So I bought a Peloton and so sandwiches are few and far between these days. But if I had to have one, I go down the street to a place called Krabby Jack's and get a um, fried shrimp po' boy. And then they'd ask me, would you like that dress, sir? And then I'd look at them kind of funny. And then they'd explain to me what dressed is. And that's mayonnaise, lettuce, and tomatoes. And I'd say, go ahead and put it on there. And got a good, um, like, French bread type roll and load it up with the shrimp and go for it. So I would say a shrimp po' boy, probably my favorite sandwich down here. Well, uh, I don't know about you, Teddy, but I was taking notes there. I have copious <laughs> notes now, so I'll be prepared for my next my next trip down there. Yeah, but, so when uh, you guys come down, you got to just go down, <laughs> take a left out of the parking lot and go down Claiborne Avenue. You'll find Krabby Jacks on your left. So, I mean, the beautiful um, thing about New Orleans is like right there, just all those places, like no matter where you are, you're like at most or two turns like in a block from, you know, some great food that, that you can, whether it's a a sandwich joint or, or like a, a big time restaurant. Yeah. You just kind of got to be open to it. You know, there's just a lot of different ways to cut it up, but boy, they'll, they'll find a way to cook it up for you around here. That's for sure. Well, that's awesome. That's great about the, the weight loss that that's, uh, <laughs> you know, that that's one way to, to, to burn time and calories, I guess, during, uh, you know, during the quarantine. Yeah, no doubt. I, I think I made mention, I bought a Peloton bike and that's just been, um, awesome. So, but, you know, I'm real proud of our guys, you know, I think everybody's starting to get that winning feeling. I think they understand how it is. I think the culture, everybody uses the word culture. And I think a, a really good culture is just established in kind of a way. And I think the older guys, because they're more knowing, um, they do more right. And, uh, they replicate it more. And so I think we've got a nice group of old and, and new, and I think our older guys are doing a really good job of um, kind of carrying the torch. Um, excited about hopefully a full spring of baseball ahead. And, uh, you know, the guys like you may mention, Oltoff and Benoit and Aldrich. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Keegan Gillis. You know, he'd been kind of a star for us um, for most of our time here, but we've moved him to the back of the games now so it gives us a legit uh, closer he's been up to 97 this fall so um feel kind of feel pretty good about not only the start of it but the end of it which is really important and the guys like jake mcdonald and some of these other guys have given us some bullpen strength and some other midweek starter options and so um feel good about it and like my wife always said she's like well hitting's never been a real problem so you you'll figure that out so as long as uh, you got the pitching to match it then we can, again, you know, try to become the best version of ourselves. We'll just figure it out. But uh, feel good about um, you know, some of the pieces that we have in play. 
Absolutely. Hard not to be excited. And, you know, we're, we're looking forward to seeing what, uh, what it looks like at, out there on the field in 2021. I know you are as well. And we really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to join us here on the podcast and, and break it all down for us. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate your time. And, and uh, I always enjoy following you and appreciate what you do for college baseball. And hopefully we'll see you at a ballpark in the near future. Thank you again to Travis Jewett for joining us here on today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Joe, we talked about this before the interview, just how interesting this Tulane team was in in 20 and what they could have accomplished. And now, you know, we heard about what they have in 21. And, you know, the, the there, there's a lot of reason for optimism on the pitching side. And Travis didn't really come out and say the the hitting side. In fact, he actually sounded, you know, somewhat concerned about the hitting. But you know, he did mention that his wife said to him at one point, like, well, once you get the pitching figured out, you know, hitting's never been a problem for you. And that's true. You know, if you look at, you know, his tenure both at Tulane and then as a as a hitting coach and recruiting coordinator and as assistant coach, you know, that's that's what he does. And they've been very successful doing that. So, you know, they might not be there right now, but if the pitching is legit and there's every reason to believe that, you know, I, I don't see any reason why the hitting won't come or at least be good enough for the green wave uh, to be competitive at a high level in 21. I, I tend to agree. I would like, uh, you know, obviously I would like the team a little bit more if they had some of those guys who are, who are now gone. If they had some of those guys back, I certainly would like that a little bit more, but I, I tend to agree. And I think it just might be the kind of thing where maybe there are some growing pains early you know, it's entirely possible. It's, it's one of those deals where you look at the opening day lineup and then six weeks later, you know, four of the nine are just completely different players in, in terms of like, you know, run out the first nine and maybe three or four of those guys just never get it going. So you kind of, you sub in three or four other different guys and those guys figure it out. And I think it could be a little bit of mixing and matching for Tulane, but I, I do have a level of confidence that at the very least, uh, maybe it doesn't have the depth of last year's offense, at least what we saw early on in the season, because I think that was notable about that offense is they really ran, you know, five, six, maybe seven deep of guys that they appeared to really, really trust and were, and were putting up numbers in, in one way or another. And maybe it's a little more like, you know, the offense, uh, some of the offenses from a couple of years ago at Tulane where there were, there was a little more inconsistency throughout the lineup, but you knew they had two or three real thumpers in the middle of the order that you always had to work around. And a lot of times that's, that's enough. If you get some contributions uh, here and there from other guys in the lineup, as long as you have a handful of guys, you know, you can, you bank on. So maybe with a guy like Trevor Minder kind of being the, the Cody Hosey of this, of this lineup, for example, that's putting a lot on him, although he also plays third base. So it's kind of an easy comparison to make. Maybe he's kind of the centerpiece and, and that's where everything kind of revolves around him and they can, build an offense around a bunch of different guys who do a lot of different things. And, and maybe it doesn't quite look like the 2020 offense, but I I'm confident it's going to get there. And to his point, they're not going to have to score as many runs as they've had to in the past, as long as the, the pitching continues to develop at the pace at which it appeared to be developing in 2020. And I think this is a, a two lane team where I would, I would really love, and we know there's just so much up in the air about scheduling, but this is a type of situation where I'd really love to know, 
what their early schedule looks like, because I think depending on who they end up opening with, whether it's a conference foe and they're jumping right into conference play or a non-conference foe or whatever it is, I think depending on who it is, will kind of give us a window into what we can expect because you can see if, if they get drawn against somebody who knows their way around the mound a little bit, uh, you can see a scenario where maybe they've some low scoring games, maybe they get beat up a little bit early on. On the flip side, if they've got some opponents they can handle early on and really give their hitters time to adjust, uh, maybe they can get off to a hot start and weather that storm and then really take off from there. Of course, we're just, we're not going to get those scheduling answers in this year in particular, but I, this is the type of team where you'd love to know what they have in front of them because you can kind of expect uh, something out of that. But as it is, we're just going to have to kind of kind of guess about that going into the season. Well, uh, you know, take it for what it's worth, but Tulane actually, there is some, some schedule uh, publicly and they're slated to, to start against uh, Louisiana Lafayette, you know, obviously we'll see. Uh, but if that, if that does happen, if they're able to play against Mississippi state and Troy, like they want to, I know, um, you know, those are potential weekend series, then that would be pretty interesting as, uh, as, as you try and, and evaluate them. That would be, those would be good barometers now we'll see if any or all of those series are, are able to be played. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about how open-ended scheduling is right now. And, you know, the fact that you can say something is scheduled all you want uh, in, in 2020, what, what's scheduled today very easily is undone tomorrow. So, you know, we'll see, but to your point though, yes, right out of the gate, I'm, I'm interested to see what they've got and, whether they that's playing ULL or playing say Houston, I don't really think it matters much. I, I I think that we're going to learn something about them very quickly, and and it will, you know, it, all the games in in, in twenty one are going to matter a lot just because you you never know. You know, we we've seen football, we're seeing basketball right now. Games get canceled, and and right now there's no reason to think that that won't happen to baseball on some level. So. If uh, if that is the way it is, you know, every game becomes a little more important because you don't know what might get canceled down the line. But you know, the regardless, the what Tulane looks like on opening weekend is, uh, I agree, uh, a, a prime storyline as, as you go into the the twenty one season. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about the idea of we've talked around this a little bit, but I hadn't thought of scheduling in this way where. Uh, you know, thoughts and prayers to the teams that are really scuffling in these major conferences, because I'm not suggesting that teams consciously let off the gas if they win two out of three on that Sunday game. But I think that's kind of human nature sometimes, especially if it's a, if you're on the road. Um, but I think knowing that the games could be limited and knowing how important it could be to bank a sweep versus just taking two out of three, if say, your next weekend series gets canceled for COVID or what have you, that's going to make really not leaving any games on the table extremely important. And so if you're, if you're a team that's really struggling, I don't, I don't know that you're going to get a whole lot of those gentlemen sweeps where maybe you take the Sunday game because the team is, has kind of accomplished their, their big picture goal and they're on the road and they're ready to get home and all that kind of stuff. Again, I'm not saying anybody purposely lets their foot off the gas, but you're certainly not going to see it in 2021 when everyone knows the importance of, every single game on the schedule, especially if you're not going to be playing as many as you would otherwise. 
Absolutely. I mean, it, it, you know, we'll have plenty of time to, to break all of that down once we get a better idea of what what's going on. But, you know, I, I do think that that is, you know, going to be a reality as as you look towards this, the, the spring. You know, the other thing I wanted to, to touch on here, um, you know, in relation to, to what he said about Tulane is just, you know, the, the way that the program has been built. Um, you know, th- this is Tulane. This this is a team that has College World Series in this century, College World Series appearances. Um, you know, to his point, yeah, you can go to Tulane and you can play in the big leagues. You can go to Tulane and, and do a lot of things. Uh, so I, I mean, Sleeping Giant is is not what they are. But I mean, Joe, I mean, you when you got into college baseball, I mean, you've talked a lot about that on this podcast. Tulane was a big deal and. You know, you grew up in Houston around Rice. I mean, I, I just see a lot of similarities between those programs. You being maybe a little bit closer to some of it. I mean, are, do you see that uh, as well? Similarity between between Tulane and, and Rice or the one he made between Tulane and Vanderbilt? Well, uh, Tulane and Rice. I mean, I, I know what he's talking about with Vanderbilt, partially because, you know, we've talked about that. We talked about that when he took the job that, you know, he sees Tulane as private school, major city, elite education. Um, all of these are things that he sold to recruits at Vanderbilt as the recruiting coordinator. It's very easy to sell similar things to them at Tulane. Obviously, you don't have it with the SEC. You aren't selling Tim Corbin. You're selling yourself. But, I mean, there are there are similarities there. There are similarities between Vanderbilt, um, Tulane, TCU, USC, schools like that. And I get all of that. Uh, but when when you like just looking at Rice and Tulane as like schools that are trying to get back to this, you know, big time history that they have. Obviously, for Rice that means a national championship. For Tulane, that you know they didn't win a national title; they just went to the World Series a couple times. Uh, but that you know, it's been a little while since they've been there, and now they're trying to do it in a new landscape. And it's just going to be interesting to see how how that works. Yeah. Well, I mean, my answer to, to both is, is yes, there are, there are certainly similarities. One of the, the big ones at, at Tulane is that uh, when Rick Jones really had Tulane cooking back at that time, they were, they recruited Texas very, very well. And they've always recruited, of course, they, re- they recruit Louisiana well, but Texas was probably their second hottest hotbed at, the, at that time. And a number of their, their big recruits at that time were coming out of the state of Texas and in Houston in particular. And, and Tulane has a, it's obviously a smaller private school, so it doesn't have the influence in Houston that LSU does, for example. The LSU people will tell you that, you know, Houston is one of its biggest alumni bases. And I think I heard one time it's the biggest outside of the state of Louisiana. So there's that. But Tulane, there is a, there is some Tulane influence in Houston as well. I've, I've known several people who, uh, growing up in Houston, who went to Tulane. So there is that. So it is kind of a natural recruiting area. And Tulane did a, did a really, really good job there. At the same time, Rice really had it cooking there. There are similar schools in terms of you know, uh, costly, high academics, private schools, um, things that really kind of made their hay on baseball because Tulane famously uh, not typically very good. They've had their moments in football more so than Rice, but typically not very good historically in, in a lot of the other major sports, but really made a name for themselves nationally in baseball. So I think it was a great comparison back in 2005, 2006, 2007. Uh, the difference is Rice really kind of that had a little bit of a longer tail, whereas Tulane really kind of uh, more precipitously dropped off uh, before Rick Jones stepped aside and and David Pierce took back over. What's a little bit interesting to me now with Tulane is that uh, it was really interesting to hear 
Coach Jewett make the comparison to Vanderbilt because I do think the way that team is built um, is kind of similar to what you see at Vanderbilt, and that feels like a conscious choice to me, where Tulane, because of its profile as an academic private school, um, has, has, like I said, always kind of recruited nationally. However, I think it's more so now, whereas, you know, under Coach Jones, I think it was a lot of Louisiana, a lot of Texas, and then you'd sprinkle in, you know, some Florida, some other deep South, and then you, they'd pick and choose in other parts of the country. Whereas um, now I think uh, you look at Tulane's roster and it is really, they've got a graphic in their, in their media guide where it's, you know, they've got a decent, I think Florida is actually the state they pull from most. You've got Florida, you've got Louisiana, and then it's a lot of, you know, a couple kids from this state, a couple from that state, you know, one from, they've got one kid from eight or nine different states. So they are really are and that, that kind of looks a lot like what Vanderbilt is doing now. And I think there was a, a impulse to look at Tulane's roster when, when coach Jewett mentions those first couple of years and kind of struggling to get it going. I think there was an impulse for some to look at that roster and go, well, when Tulane was really cooking under coach Jones, they were recruiting Louisiana, but they were really hitting it hard in Houston and, you know, Dallas a little bit. And those were their two big states. And it feels like they've gotten away from that. And maybe that's the answer to why they're struggling here. And now though, I think it has kind of turned on its head where Tulane is clearly coming back in a positive direction. Maybe it would have been back in the postseason in 2020. And now you start to look at their roster and you look at it the other way where you say, well, he's just building like Vanderbilt builds. And of course there's a a key difference here that Vanderbilt plays in the, in the SEC, which is always going to be a little bit of a trump card recruiting wise, but now I think you can see it as a, a feature versus maybe as a bug when they were struggling, it might've been a bug that, Hey, they're recruiting. Why are they, you know, recruiting these kids from, from Illinois and other places in the Midwest and the, the Northeast, why don't they stay with their bread and butter? But now I think you can look at it as like, Hey, look, they know who they are as an institution and they're going to go get these kids that fit that mold of the institution they're trying to be in the baseball program they're trying to be. And, you know, Travis Jewett's been doing this for a long time. He did it at Vanderbilt and he knows what he's doing, building these rosters. And now I think it's easier to see that as a feature of what's going on there, as opposed to a bug, which might've been the impulse when things weren't going so great. Absolutely. I, I think the, there's a lot to that. And uh, it, it's just interesting to watch them build, uh, you know, obviously when you recruited Vanderbilt, you have to recruit nationally. And then that, you know, changes, you know, maybe the way that you, have been used to doing things and, and opens your relationships. Like he talked a lot about, you know, relationships that that's why you're able to have success in, in various geographic footprints. And well, as you go through your career, you build these relationships. And when you're at Vanderbilt, you have to build them in the Northeast. That's just a part of the Vanderbilt philosophy under Tim Corbin is that you're going to have Northeast kids. So you build those relationships, you build them in Illinois. Cause well, that's not that far of a drive to Nashville, pretty easy for a kid to go there. And, and then they continue to pay dividends no matter where you go. And, you know, he's far from the only coach to, that, that that's happened for. I mean, if you look at South Carolina, Mark Kingston, um, you know, came, comes from Illinois state via South Florida, uh, you know, South Carolina is now getting to, into Illinois pretty well because of the connections that staff made in that part of the country. And, and so, you know, it, I'm, I'm very interested to see where it goes from here. I, I think they're on a great track, um, you know, but we'll uh, we'll see what they have here uh, on offer in, in 2021. Like, like we discussed open American race Tulane, definite contender. And 
uh, probably fringe top 25 team as we start to build out a preseason top 25 and in, in not too long. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably about right. We've said it a thousand times, you know, if you're, if you're kind of a, a fan who might be looking to, to, you know, you've got maybe your, your program in a major conference and you're looking for somewhere else to, to put your focus in college baseball in the springtime, you, you really could do a lot worse than really kind of like locking in on the American, because I think there are a handful of teams there that are national level good this year. Um, I think it could be a banner year for the American in terms of, you know, being able to have teams that can compete, not just to, not just to get maybe one team to host and then two others into regionals, but maybe this is the year they push to have a couple of hosts. Maybe one of those actually looks like an Omaha contender. Um, it could be that kind of year in the American. So in addition to it, just being a really talented year in a lot of places in the American. So I think if you're, if you're really looking for a place to throw some extra interest come college baseball season, the American is not a bad choice. Absolutely. I, I would, I would agree with that. All right. So before the interview, I mentioned we had some news to, uh, to discuss uh, here. And so like, let, let's, let's get to that here, Joe, I, I guess the, the news is maybe multi-part um, for fans that have been following our at Baseball America's reporting of the reorganization of the minor leagues. You may have, you may remember a month, six weeks ago, JJ Cooper reported that the New York Penn league would be going away and major league baseball was, uh, you know, talking about turning it into a, uh, a summer college league. Uh, well, that has now come to fruition with an announcement on Monday, November 30, uh, six teams, well, five teams, four coming from the New York Penn League, a fifth coming from AA, a sixth still to be announced, uh, will come together to create the MLB Draft League, which is going to be open to every draft-eligible player but primarily expected to draw on rising seniors and graduated seniors uh, to, to play a season, play leading up to the draft, which again has been moved to the middle of July, all-star weekend for MLB. Uh, you know, so they'll get a chance to showcase themselves in a, in a league, in a, a pretty condensed league, easy to scout, easy to get seen, get, get your, all, all, all your metrics on, on file for teams in one place leading up to the draft. And so they've, they've created this league and it is going to be run by prep baseball report and hired to run the league as, as its president is Carrick Jackson, who has been the coach at Southern for the last three years. And I think that's probably the most like college baseball, NCAA baseball, uh, significant news is that Carrick Jackson is leaving Southern after three seasons, did a very impressive job in turning Southern around uh, when he Southern has the richest baseball tradition of, of any HBCU. They've won 27 SWAC titles in the last 60 years. They have an NAIA national title. Roger Cador, you know, had the program really humming uh, 15 to 20 years ago. In the last years of his tenure, however, things slowed down. They struggled a lot 
off the field, which led to some APR problems, which led him to being banned from the postseason. And so Carrick arrives three seasons ago. They they're not good. They win nine games, and then they have the biggest turnaround in the country. 2019 win the SWAC go to regionals and we're off to a, a fine start in uh in 2020 it's hard to hard to judge um you know a, a team like Southern until they really get into conference play uh just because of the schedules they're playing um but they were off to a a, a pretty good start every reason to believe that they were still one of the best teams in the SWAC it certainly looked like that early on uh and now yeah, they, as you look to 21, should be one of the favorites in the SWAC again. So now some turnover happening at Southern. Chris Crenshaw is going to take over the program on an interim basis. I expect him to, to coach this spring. Uh, he played at Southern, coached at Southern for the last two years. Previously was the recruiting coordinator at Jackson State for five seasons. One of the best recruiters in the SWAC. Um, would be very capable if they hire him definitely deserves a very, very long look by the administration. Uh, so that is, you know, that, that that's the one end of this. The other end is this new league, which again is going to mostly be for rising seniors and graduated seniors to get another look that there's been a lot of chatter, maybe some confusion, the way that this has been framed in the release um, from MLB has kind of been that this is for top prospects in air quotes, their top prospects. It's not like that's not who's going to play in this league, at least not in its infancy. Um, you know, it's going to be more for the, when I talked to Carrick, he, he talked about the players that like he thinks would be great for this league are low to mid major players who didn't get seen as much be that because of their location or just, you know, they overshadowed, you know, scouts can only do so much. Um, so this would present them an opportunity to, uh, to go out and get seen, uh, you know, a, a, maybe a player from a major program who didn't get a chance to do, do what he show his, his, his ceiling in the spring, you know, okay. So you, you're, you're you're a you're a pitcher at an SEC school and you have the ability to start, but like your your team has three top five round pitchers as starters already. So you're you're off as a setup man. Well, maybe this league gives you the opportunity to go out and show that you can pitch for five, six innings, seven innings, whatever, uh, and, and you can start. Um, so something like that. Or of course, if a player is hurt uh in the spring that and, but can get healthy and get back on the field in time to play in this league, it would be uh, a, a great league for them as well. So that's the kind of players I expect to make it up for the first few years, at least maybe as things become more established, uh, some of the top end players are more willing to put themselves out there and play in this league. But to think that they're going to do that right away as everyone tries to feel out this new draft system, I don't think it's going to happen if you put enough, uh, you know, track record together in your junior season, you're probably going to shut it down after the draft. If you feel like you're a top 100 pick, I don't, I'm not anticipating those kinds of players 
going to the Cape, although some of them might. I'm not anticipating those kinds of players going to the MLB Draft League, uh, though, again, some of them might. But I, maybe down the line you'll see that. But at least for right now, I think what you're looking at is kind of a showcase league for players that still have something to prove for one reason or another. I think that's right. And I think what, <clears throat> excuse me, I think what the kind of the, the, the caveat you have there of like, we'll see what it becomes down the line. I think the gap there that could be made up is, is if it becomes the type of thing where players go there and because the coaching is either so good you know, they, they get the right guys in there that really are focused on player development or the tools they're being given are so good that these players really see fast, you know, huge improvements just in that, in, in the time span that this league takes place. And of course, if that type of thing starts happening, then that's, that's all it really takes for a different class of players to suddenly be interested in the league. And of course it, it'll just take time for that reputation if that takes hold to to take hold so we'll that we'll just have to see a little bit further down the line on on that because you could you could see the scenario where mlb really uh, it's clear that mlb really wants to uh, you know uh, it makes it sound menacing when i put this but it really wants to control kind of this whole process of the player from from beginning to end and you could see a scenario where you know mlb really puts some resources behind this and is really serious about this. And suddenly it kind of opens up some doors for some players, for some opportunities they, they may not have. And, and Oh, by the way, chief among them are the types of players that you're describing, you know, low mid major division ones, D2 players, you know, junior college players who maybe, um, or I, I suppose would, would junior college players even be a part of this, I guess, is my question to you. They will any draft eligible player that includes high schoolers. Um, You know, maybe you're a high schooler in Canada, and, you know, if you're not playing with the Canadian Junior National Team, hard to be seen. Uh, it's just kind of the reality of the, the situation up there. Or, you know, some cold weather state or, or some underscouted state, maybe. But I, I would not expect high school players, junior college players for sure. Uh, I, I do think there's there will be them in the league. But a high school player would probably end up pretty overmatched there so i think it would have to be the right kind of player trying to do a specific thing in the league yeah yeah so you know the junior college player you can i mean we know that profile well a guy who maybe he's not super keen on school is worried about qualifying it's late in the process he's got some raw tools he's not a finished product you know that type of guy maybe thrives in that that situation so yeah that's those are the types of players that i anticipate being interested there Happy for Carrick Jackson, um, you know, a guy that, that I enjoy talking to. I know you enjoy talking to him. I always appreciate coaches who are interested in things beyond just their program and the wins and losses, and even interested in things beyond, because I think on some level, all coaches are interested in developing players and developing people and, and what have you. But I think his interest even kind of goes beyond that. He's really interested in a lot of big picture things in the sport. And I don't just mean diversity. That's the thing I think will most associate with him that the work that he's done in terms of trying to bring more diversity to college baseball. And that's really admirable work, but he's even beyond that. He's just really thinking a lot about the sport and how to make the sport better. And he cares about HBCU baseball. He cares about low major baseball and trying to make the sport more equitable for those programs. So I'm sad to be losing a guy, a big picture thinker like Carrick Jackson at the college level. Um, although who knows, you know, maybe we'll see him down the road. Certainly this type of job is not going to disqualify him from, uh, you know, getting back into it at, at some point. So, uh, 
sad to see him go from the ranks, sad for Southern. Um, obviously, they're losing a guy who's really transformed that program quickly, as you mentioned, and, and hopefully whether it's, uh, you know, Coach Crenshaw or someone else down the road, they can kind of keep what he's built on and, and keep that momentum going uh, forward into the future. I, I should mention that part of the reason why uh, Carrick felt like this was the right move for him is that uh, PBR is going to kind of endow a foundation uh, that he'll also be in charge of uh, that, that will be about promoting diversity within amateur baseball, kind of taking in what he has done with the ABCA diversity committee and just giving him the time and the resources to really dedicate to it because while he and um, Spencer Allen and all of the coaches on that committee, Mark Martinez, um, they're really dedicated and they want to, you know, have, do the work to, to make the changes that they feel like they need to, to, to promote, you know, getting more minorities into the amateur ranks, coaching and playing. They also have their own teams that they have to have to be coaching. And that, that's a full-time job. And as much as they want to be doing this, like that is a, they're the job they're being paid for. And B, if they aren't successful on the field, it's going to be much harder for them to, you know, get their their messages across to 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 achieve the change that they want to achieve. They they need that platform. So, uh, you know, it, it's just hard for them to to do both at, at a really high level. And so, to now have the opportunity to focus a little more time and, and just be a little more directed about it, I, I think that that was a big part of the reason why uh, Carrick felt comfortable leaving Southern is because he still has this other, you know, he's, he still has this outlet to do that, that part of it, as he described it, he didn't want to just take a job just to, to have a better title. He want, he wants a job with a purpose. He had a purpose at Southern and now he, he still feels like he can have a, a very high end purpose uh, not that he couldn't have had the purpose as, as the president of the MLB Draft League, but he felt like, I guess, his purpose was was greater at Southern than just being the president of the league. But now, with the foundation aspect added in, he's able to, um, you know, continue, you know, striving towards that 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 greater goal. That that you know, like you said, these big picture items, he still has that outlet for for those. I guess my, my final word on this will be, I think there's there'll be a lot of time to dissect the, what does it all mean in, in all capitals type of thing. And to kind of sort out, cause I think there is a little bit of confusion as to where this fits in the summer ball. Like it is a summer league in a sense, but it's kind of not in another sense. And so I think there is just some time. I know I, there might be some confusion about where it fits and, and what it means. We'll obviously have time to sort that. But what I will say is, is I'm always going to be in support of anything that, um, you know, gives an opportunity for players to get scouted, be seen, give them an opportunity to figure out what's next in their careers. I'm always going to root for players having that opportunity and having more information and being a little bit more in control of their next step in their careers. And I think this, this does that. We can argue about the logistics and, and if it's going to accomplish some of the things they wanted to accomplish, but I think just more opportunities is better. Absolutely. I, I think everyone can, uh, can get behind that ideal. Um, so that, that was the big news 
uh, you know, obviously a slower time coming out of the holidays, uh, a little, a little less newsy. It's your big news for the week around college baseball. Joe and I did another top 25. We ranked the top 25 additions in college baseball this year. We tried to do it as all encompassingly as possible. So we got freshmen on there, we got junior college transfers, four year transfers. We got coaching hires. It's uh, it's all kind of mashed together. Honestly, when I proposed it, I don't know that I realized quite how difficult this was going to be. You know, trying to, um, you know, you, you've got a grad transfer who might be great, but he's only there for one year. So, like, how do you judge that versus uh, a freshman versus, you know, who could be there for three or four years versus a junior college player who could be there for a couple of years versus, of course, like a coaching hire who's there for an indeterminate number of years. And, you know, it, if you just focus it on the 2021 season, then, you know, all of a sudden, well, freshmen become much less valuable then because, you know, how many of them are going to play prominent roles and, well, how much change can a coach really have in one year? Um, so I don't know. I don't know how good of a job we did organizing it, uh, but it was interesting to, to think about and, and, and to put together. Yeah, and even within those individual groups, there's just a lot of different reasons why someone would be included on the list. I mean, I think with coaches, for example, I don't think anybody would be surprised if, if Edwin Thompson has Georgetown certainly in a more competitive place pretty much right off the bat, but then maybe challenging to, to get to the first regional and program history in short order. And then you go a little bit further down the list, and I don't really know that anyone has that kind of expectation for Kyle Halleck at Bowling Green. However, you know, he's an important piece because – He's Especially young, not after like a couple of those players transferred in, in in between the time the program was cut and the program was reinstated. Indeed. I mean, but he's a young, energetic coach whose primary job at this point is, is of course, winning games as part of that, developing players as part of that. But really his biggest job is just to give Bowling Green a, some stability here and kind of lead them out of this turbulent period in the program history. And so he's just going to be an important figure in terms of setting Bowling Green up to have success in the next 15 years, more so than maybe even the next five. So if they win some games along the way, that's great, but it's really about kind of almost just starting back from scratch with Bowling Green. So there's a little bit of a a different, a different, uh, you know, uh, uh, approach and expectation there. And um, there were some, what I liked about doing this list is, is we've done some similar lists this off season and it was kind of nice to re-examine some of the names on this list. You know, I thought about a guy like Lyle Lockhart, who ranked fairly highly on our list of of top 25 transfers. But at the time I was kind of dubious on his stuff is just kind of okay. And he was good at Houston, but he wasn't dominant. Is he a guy that's really going to be able to succeed in the sec? And after talking with Dave Van Horn, it sounds like he was really good this fall and they have a lot of confidence in him and feel the same way about Benjamin Sims, a nice shortstop at Kansas, but can he go to a team like Michigan that expects to, you know, now has an expectation of, of winning big 10 titles and going back to Omaha and all that. And, and does he really fit in there by all accounts? Uh, he sure does. Or Scott Dubrol at Mississippi state where, you know, can he step in at second base? And it, it sounds like he's going to get every shot to do that. So um, it was kind of nice to be able to revisit what we know about some of these, especially these transfers now and, and kind of take a fresh look at what we expect for them come next season. Absolutely. And, you know, we did the the freshman list and it was kind of just like, here are the 25 best. And like, this was maybe a little bit more 
trying to find at impact, but also, I mean, we've just, it, it's been a couple months since, uh, since we did these lists and, uh, you know, things change. And, and that, that, that's the beauty of player development, especially with amateur players who are, who are young and, you know, still, uh, still growing. And, um, you know, previously it was more about what they did in high school and, and now we're looking at what they're doing in college. So I check it out. Number one on the list, Carson Montgomery from Florida State. Number two, Kevin Parado, Georgia Tech. Feel good about those two. Uh, feel good about what they can accomplish in the ACC both this year and beyond. So uh, it'll be fun to look back on this list next year, a couple of years down the line, maybe, and, and see how how things uh, actually went. But for for now, I, I I found it to be uh you know an interesting exercise. All right, so that's going to do it for us here on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, remember, you can check out everything over at BaseballAmerica.com, and you can also place a pre-order for your Baseball America Prospect Handbook, where we rank the top 30 prospects in every big league organization. So if you're looking for that, uh, as you start to get ready for the 2021 professional season, you can place your pre-order for that now. You can follow Joe and me on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And please, if you are not already, we would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere where you get your podcasts. Uh, we appreciate everyone who subscribes, rates, reviews. It, it is a, a big help to us uh, and to, for others to find the podcast. We'll be back here next week with another edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I believe we will be joined by Mississippi State uh, slugger Tanner Allen. So we're looking forward to that, and hopefully uh, you will be as well. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you to Travis Jewett for joining us here today on the Baseball America College Podcast presented by Rapsodo. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next week.